This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. In this episode, Chris Knapp, one of the founders of Maine Local Living School in Temple, Maine, returns to talk about their immersive education experience, The Understory. During our conversation, Chris shares how this program came to be, his influences, and the knowledge, skills, and encounters he and his fellow instructors seek to impart on students during this multi-week residential program. If you're interested in permaculture and what permaculture education can look like beyond the permaculture design course, or you're an instructor looking to build upon your existing curriculum and offerings, this is an interview to dive into. Enjoy this time with Chris, and I'll join you again after. The understory is currently a nine-week, probably shifting towards a 12-week program where students come to Maine Local Living School and live on this working homestead and build relationship with this place and with each other, building community, as well as digging into some of the questions that this work relates to. A nice way to think about this program is almost like a retreat in a way, because this place is so special and the land that extends out from here and just the honor to be here and live in community. So like a retreat, but retreat sometimes implies to me like we're escaping from something. Whereas I feel like this is really about not a retreat from something, but a retreat into living with everything in a really conscious way. Making that connection for people as they are learning skills and spending time together, networking, I hate that term, socializing (laughs) with other people and getting to know folks who may not come from their similar background or ways of living. What do you see as connecting people to place? Is this ideally something for folks who are from like the Northeast of the United States to get to know a bioregion similar to their own? Or do you see it as a broader way for people who may not have had an opportunity to connect with place earlier in their lives to be in a more rustic, natural setting and spend time in and on the land? I think it can work both ways really well. So There's something super powerful about growing up in a bioregion and staying there. And that's certainly the story, the long story of humankind. And when you're young and impressionable, you develop, and especially if you have a backyard to crawl around in, you develop these sort of unconscious relationships with the, I call them the people, the beings that are there. But I also don't feel like this program is in any way exclusive to someone who has lived in the Northeast or plans to live in the Northeast. One of the teachers who works here at Maine Local Living School, Jacqueline, she likes to say, which I resonate with this, she says, we all just need an excuse to live in connection with the earth in community. That's all we really are looking for. And yet we create these elaborate infrastructures and programs in order to bring that into being in this modern time. And so I think anyone can benefit from that experience of living into this place, living into what it means to be an interconnected group of people where you can so clearly see how what you do every morning impacts the whole and that we all depend upon each other and then extend that outwards that we all depend upon the earth community that we're interacting with. Yeah. So as far as, you know, 
who this experience works for, I think it can be either the local or the global, and that you can walk away from an experience of connection like that and apply it in other scenarios. So even though it may apply to the participants in different ways, they ultimately leave the program with universal skills that they can apply, whether they wind up just a few miles down the road in Maine or across the country in a desert environment or somewhere else in the world where the biome may not be the same, that they can still use what they learn to ground and root themselves into a place and discover the beauty and magic for them and the others who call it home? Absolutely. And really on two fronts, that works. There was a woman who was here for a couple of weeks doing a short intensive program this fall. And she said something I liked. We had to ask the question, I think, in the intro, what is it that you're pursuing in your life? And she said, I just want to keep doing things that make me feel like a human. And that resonates with the work. And also this sense of belonging, which for me is I discovered as a young person is a feeling of the earth really holding me and providing and me belonging to something that was beautiful. And so I think those cross borders of place, those experiences. But the other thing that crosses over that could make time with the understory relevant anywhere is just the level, the sheer level of skill building. And that's something diving into this life as a 17-year-old and just continuing on this track and still feeling like there's a long ways to go as far as the skill building, but I see the power in my own life of those skills, like to replace a broken handle on a hammer or an axe and feel that power. That skill is relevant in any scenario to be able to sharpen the edge of a knife and make it cut to a shaving edge. That skill is relevant in any scenario. And there's, I would call them like the basic skill sets of being able to utilize place, being able to have a relationship with place requires of us certain abilities. And they're not mystical. They're just not taught (laughs) in school. And so we have to go find people who are still practicing them. And that was what I did as a young person. And that's something that we continue to share outwards. One of my themes recently in conversations on the show has been a recognition how for myself and many of us who come to this road, how radical our upbringings are from our broader society. But because we've lived in those ways, they just seem normal until something takes us out of that headspace. And it's one of those pieces that my wife and I are often in conversation about is the idea of skills and not stuff. And from those experiences of building skills, There are tools that can make our lives easier because of the society that we live in. But underneath it all, once we have a core set of skills and tools, whether those are physical tools like our knives or saws, or whether it's the ability to have difficult conversations and navigate those successfully, that many of those things that we layer on top of our lives are not really necessary to living a good full life. And that instead, as we simplify in some ways and recognize our own skills and ability to show up and to feel empowered, 
that we can let go of a lot of those layers that wind up getting built on top of life that complicate it in unforeseen ways. And it sounds like what you're doing with the understory is doing what comes through in the permaculture community with the transition movement and some of these other ideas of reskilling human beings so that regardless of where we find ourselves, we can show up and be capable in the ways we need to, whether that's in the garden or foraging or as a member of our community. And that those are the kinds of skills, knowledge, and experience that you're bringing to participants of the understory. Do you feel that's a fair perspective on what you're helping your students and participants in this program to accomplish? Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think about the homestead itself is this unit of education here. And even though it doesn't represent the whole world, in a way, it allows us in this learning experience to focus in and really understand on a small scale, something that's graspable, how human interaction with place can yield really positive, amazing, reciprocal results and relationships. And there's a whole lot of skills that go into that. And I love that you always keep mentioning the human side of it, because that's such a big part of living anywhere together in a group of people is navigating, how do we get all this done? All of these ideals that we have, how do we get it done in a way that honors each other at the same time? And with this program, it sounds like there is a curriculum and that you have structure in what you share with the students. And I'm wondering though, on the other side of that, how much space is there for participants to request to learn certain things in the process because of people coming from different backgrounds. And you may have someone who knows how to sharpen their tools, but has never replaced a handle or someone who is great in a workshop, but not in the garden. And so is there space that you are able to move through this and help folks gain knowledge and skills beyond what they might bring with them? Or is it fully structured into what you're teaching? Yeah, it's definitely responsive. I mean, we've been running apprenticeship programs here since 2008, and everybody walks through the door with a different set of skills, different strengths, different deficiencies that they're wishing to fill out. And we want to meet people where they're at and flow with that. And when there's a large group of people, sometimes that means that some people might be just really fascinated with the whole humanure composting system. And so there's room in this program for that person to manage that system and to do more research beyond sort of the surface level view of what's happening and then inform the group, like these are the changes we want to make. Something that I just, I think is really powerful about the homestead in general is creativity. And there's something about the whole premise of what we're doing is that given what is here, the human and ecological resources, we should be able to provide for all of our needs, not in an isolating, like isolationist way. But that's the premise is that everything is here that we need. And now in steps human creativity, which is a wild card and sort of an endless possibility that presents itself. And so I get excited thinking that people coming in here are going to look around and see ways in which 
our systems that have developed over the last 20 years can shift and be better. And so nothing being fixed here, giving students who are participating here not only the ability, like you're saying, to dig deeper somewhere where they really want to focus, but even to overturn systems and structures that are in place as we grow and think about how things are done. And part of our previous conversation was about some of the underpinnings of your work and thoughts over the years. And I'd like to speak more about the practical and on-the-ground skills that you teach students. But before moving in that direction, I was wondering why you call this course and this program the understory? Yes, good question. So the understory has a dual meaning and one meaning quite literally is the understory of a forest. So the trees that are growing underneath the larger overstory trees that provide that upper canopy, these trees are either shade tolerant and waiting for their moment, or there's been a disturbance and they're popping up through. And I think about those trees when we work in the forest as the future. And to be able to think in those timescales of imagining a wisp being 200 years old. In that same way, we have a generation of really smart, creative people who are looking around at the forest they inhabit and saying, this forest has a lot of problems and it isn't healthy in the ways that it could be. And so those are the trees, those students, they're the understory that are growing into that role of the future. So in that way, the name honors those people. And then the other thing that I like about the name is I feel when my own studying of history and the past and how we came to be where we are, I feel like there's this story underneath the story that we hear. And I'm super interested in that story. And so the name also reflects an interest in what is this narrative underneath the dominant culture's narrative? And how did we really end up here? And by understanding that, how can we move forward in creative and just ways? So that's the name, the understory. One of the pieces that I like about this is because it does pull on those threads of how we communicate and relate to one another and how even in an interview like this or a conversation with others that what arises comes not only from within ourselves, but also what is occurring between us as we listen to each other and hear what is being said, paying attention to perhaps the words that aren't being used or what isn't being said and understanding the impacts of how we grew up in the broader society we come from and how that relates to the stories that we tell and the way that we relate to the stories that are heard. And I can imagine how that manifests then for your students, not only through those human relations that they are building through that intense experience with the other participants. And I know for permaculture design students that a permaculture design course, even if it's something that's taken in person on the weekends, let alone a one week or longer intensive, whether a teacher training or the PDC proper over two or three weeks, that those can be very intense experiences relating to others. And I can only imagine what that is like for folks who get to extend that kind of opportunity over time, not only with people, but also with place through a program like The Understory. Yeah, you're getting it. <laughs> 
You're dialing in. I have a friend who teaches martial arts and he says that he never likes the word retreat. He always likes the word retire. And I (laughs) I think of that in the moment that there's, that it's not necessarily, as you say, a retreat away from something, but that we're retiring from the society around us for a while. And I've had some extensive off the grid experiences over the years as an adult, and that it takes usually three to five days, maybe a week to really start to settle into a place and let go of some of those connections to the broader outside world. And then you can really get into that deeper work that occurs once you've detached from some of those things. It absolutely takes time. I've been involved in semester education since I was in my early 20s. And things happen on week three that could never happen on week one. And things happen on week 10 that could never happen on week three. And it just keeps going and deepening. And we keep opening in ways that we don't anticipate or know possible, but are beautiful. And that's, you know, it's one of the gifts of this type of learning experience. And I can't say that it's to the credit of the teacher. It's really to the credit of the experience and the place and the time that's being given. And I think back, I believe it was my permaculture teacher training where we talked about how these intensive experiences can be really important also because any of us can be our best selves for two or three, maybe four days, but that over an extended period of time, it's difficult for us to stay on and in that space. And that it is as we move past showing our best selves, or perhaps if you will, the face that we want to show the world, that we can be vulnerable and get to some of the real work that is necessary to make those deeper connections, not only with our own story and the people around us, but also the landscape and the place that we're in, that the newness or strangeness of somewhere different, that we can inhabit that wholly after enough time and really be present in ways that we wouldn't be otherwise. It speaks to the magic of the experience that you are able to create. And I don't mean that in any kind of a necessarily spiritual kind of a way, just that we can fully experience something by having that time in place. Yeah. Speaking more specifically about in the context of this experience, we can work with really creating space for that work to be done. And so it's not just like a happenstance. Maybe it will happen, these deeper connections, maybe they won't. But just to give that space every day after morning chores, in the morning, we bring the world into being and make sure that there's fire, wood and water and food for everybody and the goats are milked and animals are taken care of. And all of that is sort of this morning dance. And then there's the sit spot, which is time. It's not a meditation, but it's time to be a part of the community that extends beyond the human community. Because what we do on a homestead, in some ways, it can really envelop you its own humanness. And so we make this really conscious effort to invite in the voices from the broader community, which means creating space for listening. And so people go out, they find a place and sit for half an hour and always really amazing stories come back because it's this time where we just give our mental space over, not to thinking, not to trying to go inside, but actually letting the voices that are out there, because I do 
certainly encourage and believe that we live in a world of animate voices, but just to go observe whatever's happening and take part as an observer and see how it resonates in our consciousness. So that's something we create space for daily and also sharing out about those experiences. And in this program, we also invite people and create structure to do a much longer sip, which is an amazing and intense experience. And that's really wherever someone's at, ready to meet people where they're at, as you were talking about earlier. It could be 24 hours, could be 48 hours. And those experiences for me have been so powerful that I feel like they are pertinent tools for all humans. (laughs) And so I just, I believe in them. And then as not everyone would have an opportunity to participate in the understory, I was wondering if you could share with us who and what some of your influences were that inspired you to create this program that people might seek out if they would like to understand this experience a bit more or perhaps explore or develop their own program or experience where they are for perhaps themselves or their family or on their homestead. And then from there, what do you imagine the future direction and perspective of the understory would be? And who are your current influences as you continue to develop and move this program forward with students? The program has its roots in the apprenticeship that my wife and I did with Ray Reitze. So he was a big influence in our lives and what we learned through him and that time that he facilitated for us, which was a lot of what I was just describing of not him doing the teaching, but him creating the space, but then also coming in and sharing the skills. This is how you lace a snowshoe. So those are some of the influences. That's one of the one of the influences and our own trajectory as guides working with other organizations and doing immersive experiences in outdoor education is another sort of influence that's coming to bear. And then I think in my own creation of this work, just time doing and being has been so important. There's, and that's not so helpful maybe It's not like saying, hey, go read this book or go listen to this podcast, which there's a lot that can be learned through those mediums, which is valuable. But there's something about just doing for long periods of time, which is a way of learning that is slow and that is respectful of the micro place and situations that we find ourselves in. And it is something that my life has afforded, which I'm very grateful for. And sometimes I marvel at things when suddenly I'm like, oh, I should just do that. That makes so much more sense, given our place and situation. For example, like a couple of things come to mind. But this type of learning that is, people can sometimes call it dirt time learning or what have you. But it's so important as far as the influences on this place. Yeah. I was just thinking about as we've created this homestead here from the woods and worked with increasing the diversity of species and creating food systems that work because 
the land was forested and then turned, some of it turned into open space, we struggled to create rich pasture for the goats and nutrients always want to end up in the food producing gardens, not on those green spaces where down the leguminous crops and they take, but they really are drawing off of nothing. They're drawing off of an acidic, what wants to be forest soil. So now years later, I've just come up with this slow patchwork pattern that suddenly is really resonating of all the brush that we feed to the goats gets piled in a circle in a spot over this impoverished sod burned, which actually burns the sod, which releases us to get back into the ground. And at that point, we've got all this ash and we get in there with rock bars and pitchforks and pull out the incredible amount of rock that's in our soil. And then there's this little circle. It's just 12 feet across of what would have been hard to de-rock with the sod on it, but suddenly rock free, lots of ash. And then we give a small amount of compost and seed in the clover and the alfalfa. And it's complete transformation. And it's just like something that I couldn't see 20 years ago, but living here over time suddenly became such an obvious solution of having these large piles of brush that have been fed to the goats and the situation of the pasture. And there's a long-winded answer, but there's so many examples of the way in which time in a place is an important factor in learning. And the understory is short comparatively, but in comparison to say taking a weekend course or something like that, it's the beginning of that work of spending time in a place and listening in a way that we maybe aren't taught in the beginning. Though, yes, I think I was looking for a, <laughs> a more direct, here are some books, here are some folks to check out. At the end of your explanation, I started to think about how for permaculture practitioners though, you outlined the way that we are taught to stop and observe and work incrementally, take things slow, respond to feedback, and permaculture practitioners that if they applied the principles to their personal thought process and where they want to go with their education or their training or their skill set, that just taking some time with themselves to listen to what it is that they'd like to experience and learn, and then apply that towards what skills they want to develop, whether that's practicing in the landscape, taking classes, or however they might want to do so, that some of that slow incremental dirt time is a way to get there and that they can find their own meaningful influences that work for them in their time and place. Absolutely. And pay attention to the voices that are out there in the human community too. Like it was only a number of years ago that I discovered the work of Robin Kimmerer. And I said, wow. And I was working on writing a series of short essays about the same sort of subject matter that she grapples with. And when I read Kimmerer's work, I said, oh, I don't need to write that book because she wrote it a hundred times better from her indigenous perspective and just articulated it so beautifully. And then that work of another voice, another human voice expressing either cultural history or the voice of the land or whatever's arising through their spirit becomes a shoulder for you to stand upon even and say, oh, that resonated. But you couldn't read that book 
and really deeply understand without something already in there. And so that thing was already in me. So then I read that and I think, oh, okay. And that brings our level of understanding up a notch. And from there, we, we step off and saying, oh, thank you. Thank you for this, for these words, which now help push this trajectory a little bit farther forward. It's like just getting a helping hand. And so there are voices, certainly, and you in your work are a curator of these voices that can bring us along. And the understory also is a place and time to read people who are thinking about how it is that humans in place interact and can be mutually supportive. And you also asked earlier about what are current influences moving this program. And I would just say that the program, it's about there's all this skill building that's happening, living on a homestead, and we're very literally building buildings, working with soil, producing 90% of the food that we consume, gathering from the wild, making acorn bread year round, completing nutrient cycles, all of this work is happening, but the program's not fixed. It's always growing and shifting. And that's, I think, important and as it should be. And my own study of history, another of the women who has worked here through the years is like you, Scott, a storyteller and has been studying story for years and is now teaching story in her own life work. So that's a piece that's an influence that's working in there. And then Michelle, who works with us, comes from a social justice and activism background, working for 350 and in the climate movement. And she brings that influence. So those are sort of current forces that continue to shape the content and the discussion, as well as the participants who will also influence that content and discussion as we work together and feed off of each other's stories. For people who are interested in this program and would be interested in taking it the next time that it's offered, what kind of skills, knowledge, and experiences do you want students to leave the understory with? If we think about physical skills, like the skill base that we'd like people to leave here with, because well, you think about the name, the understory, you think about the place that we inhabit, which is a forested landscape in the western mountains of Maine, to be able to look at a forest and know them as a cast of characters. So know the characteristics of the trees that live here and have some understanding of why the forest looks the way that it does right now because of human influence over the past few hundred years and what our role might be in the future. And I know that this sounds like a really niche kind of skill. It's relevant if you live in the woods and this woods is, you have some capacity to interact with this woods in a way which is legal meaning you own the land or you have permissions. But I feel like this skill is broader than is culturally recognized right now because we have a few ecosystems represented in the world and forest is a huge one. And well, not that the, I shouldn't say there's a few ecosystems. I'm thinking about the place where we are, that there's either forest here or there's through human disturbance, there's field or there's bog. And so forest is by far what we work with and the capacity to start to see this as a creative reciprocal relationship. So when we work in the woods, which is a big part of this program, like this spring for the understory, we're going to be thinning trees that 
will then do some roundwood timber framing into a structure that we need to hold firewood and wheelbarrows and tools. But when we work in the woods, we're working for the woods. And it's incredible when you start working for the woods, how much returns to the human community. We end up with the logs for mushrooms and the logs for firewood and the poles for the barn and those that will go through the little sawmill that we have here for boards. And we end up with food crops from chestnut and acorn that we're working with. And we start to just see this relationship with woods as really like the base relationship that sustains life here. So I really wish when people leave here that they both recognize the unique characteristics of trees, but also can make some kind of wise decisions about how we as humans can interact and even help that community of trees to thrive through our own work. That feels really important to me. And we'll bring in other voices. I have a friend who's a forester and our mentor, Ray Reitze, is still alive and has his training through his mentor, which brings in a really also different perspective. And then added into that, the capacity to do that work safely and wisely with the tools that are available to you is critical. So for us, that means maintaining, sharpening axes and bow saws, and then also teaching about the chainsaw. And we do live in a world in which we blend these technologies and we do it consciously. And that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, the chainsaw is an amazing tool as well. So I feel like we haven't talked much about hard skills. So I just wanted to pull that in because they're the skills of being able to fell and work with and caretake a forest, which eventually ends up being bowls and pack baskets and all of this other amazing work that we do. That's where it begins. The forest is the source. And so being able to recognize and tend that source in an intelligent way, I feel like it's just, boy, so important to humans where we are right now. And there's a lot of great research coming out, too, about managing a forest for carbon sequestration. And we're interested in joining. I've been researching joining a program where they actually pay landowners to grow trees because people are starting to put a monetary value on the ecological service of trees, but it's so much more than that. And I think this program encapsulates that. It's like a skill, intersection of skills and philosophy, but also we dwell in the realm of open space and agricultural practice. And so people having skills that make them feel familiar and comfortable with the act of putting seeds in the ground and tending and harvesting. And those are important skills because they really empower us to to see, wow, it's such a small amount of space to pull out 600 pounds of carrots, and that's a lot of food. And so we're excited to share a view with people of, if you combine some agricultural skills with some wild gathering skills and some plant identification skills, that it actually really becomes super real very quickly that a large part of your food can be provided from a small piece of ground. What you were saying about a chainsaw, I think about my own experiences. My father had me felling trees at probably what would be now an irresponsibly young age, growing <laughs> up in the 80s, and handing me one of his smaller chainsaws to cut down like a six or eight inch diameter tree when he would be going to get firewood. But it makes me think also of the woodsman, Ben Law, who was on the show a number of years ago, and he talked about how he's out in 
the middle of nowhere managing forests with solar panels and electric chainsaws because he can be out there for an extended period of time with his backpack full of batteries and his selection of saws managing woodlands for weeks on end. And then I also think about some of the choices that I made in developing a willow grove for coppicing because that was a place that I could take my son out to and whether we were using a pair of loppers or a handsaw that he could be harvesting wood himself without needing to use a chainsaw and the variety of skills that we can gather through that process and the design and management choices that we can make to make the landscape accessible across a range of ages because I know that my growing of that willow grove was also so that when I got older that I could walk out there by hand and still be able to harvest a large quantity of biomass that I could use for my fireplace, my biochar, or to create charcoal for my grill without needing to move heavy pieces of equipment or large pieces of wood. But that thought process that I just walked us through when it comes to chainsaws and woodland management are informed by permaculture design for myself because that's what I'm rooted in and thinking about my life and other lives over time. And so in addition to some of the hard skills that you spoke of that students learn, what are some of the places that you take students when it comes to helping them form their thoughts on how to exist on a homestead or in a particular place? I think it comes in all the time. It's because we like to have conversation and it might be very informal. Oftentimes, just this fall, we were working with a group of people and we chose to work with these big 42-inch bow saws and which are the really old school, like the beautiful old saws that can be sharpened because the steel is softer than the modern bow saws. And we were working on this section of woods where they had marked out all the trees and were making the decisions for the future of that forest. And then there was a scenario that was really just, it was such a better scenario for a chainsaw. And it felt like, oh, this is such the perfect time to grab this tool and show how the ability to plunge cut is going to revolutionize our world. But then that inspires a conversation about the conscious choice between these methods and the broader implications when we follow that supply chain back and think about if it is a gas-powered chainsaw, there's that component. But really, anything that's very high-tech from the industrial world carries with it a set of implications that we have to recognize. And then thinking about how we thread this line as people of what it means to live wisely and well in a place and within our means. And not a, no one's going to come up with the same answer necessarily, but having those making space for that discussion feels important. I was glad that you mentioned Ben Law there because I've been inspired by Ben Law's work. And when we look at our forest around here, there are certain trees that I feel ready to harvest and fulfill our need for boards. Some of those larger trees that are poplar, first successional trees. But there's a lot of forest here that trying to get large square timbers really just isn't realistic. So the capacity, the skill building to be able to timber frame with round wood is so amazing because it enables us to look differently at the forest where there is a lot of 
eight inch, nine inch hardwood that are incredibly strong, even stronger in their round state. So then to bring in those skills, which allow us to utilize those as we're thinning and working in the forest is a place where hard skills intersect with a capacity to work with a landscape in a way that's actually healing or better for that space, which would feel overwhelming if we didn't have those same skills. And I also love his work and a lot of these pieces that for me, from where I sit, are adjacent to permaculture because of what they bring to the table in, again, allowing us to focus on the resources that we have available and the skills that we have because seeing his work on roundwood timber framing, I had the one willow that I was growing had these main branches that were beautiful, long and straight. And every time I would coppice it, I would get another growth that was just as beautiful, round and straight and could build all kinds of things like that. But if we've only ever seen dimensional lumber in a lumber yard, it can be hard to imagine how to build with round materials and lashings and weavings compared to being able to just buy dimensional lumber and use screws and nails. Yeah. There's this cycle that I like to think about, which is that, so say Ben, somebody picks up a Ben Law book and says, oh, wow, okay, there's a world I didn't know existed. So that inspires this sort of creativity. And then there's a need for skill building. So you seek out a mentor or books, or you just fool around. And once those skills start to build, then you feel this sense of agency. And you feel like, whoa, I can do this. I can make change in my surroundings, or I can build this for myself. And that inspires this sense of like just vitality. And that feeds into your ability to work for change, which makes you start to see the change that's developing. And then you feed off that change. You have more creativity, which creates more vitality and agency. And it's a circle that goes around and around. I feel like it's a, it's a positive feedback loop. And we really want people engaging here to tap into that positive feedback loop, to tap into that sense of creativity and possibilitarianism and start to work with what's here or that to another scenario to create the world that, as they say, the world we want to live in. And that's where programs like yours, classes like the Permaculture Design Course, mentoring like I and others in the community offer for when folks have had a good grounding in a specialty that they're interested in can be really helpful because you and I and other teachers can shorten that path because we can help folks perfect their practice. And there's that idea that practice makes perfect, but it has to be the right practice because we can practice really poorly or get be getting things, if you will, incorrect, and that we never really improve in the ways that we might by seeking out a good teacher or a good book or the right video. And that by doing so, yeah, it just makes us more capable and ready to handle things in a shorter time. But as we've spoken to throughout this conversation today, and I think touched on some in our previous talk, was that you need to have the experiences that are necessary to know what you want to do and where you would like to take your own life so that then you can decide on what courses or areas of practice are appropriate for you 
you and your lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. It's like a liberal arts education. You go to a liberal arts college to be exposed to a whole lot of things with the thought that you don't really know quite where you're heading and you dabble in a cappella chorus and biochemistry and who knows what. This wasn't my experience, but I'm just saying that's what that institution is for. And then eventually you know where to go. And similarly, in the world that we live in now, people don't know what are the possibilities out there even. And so the understory is a place just to, to be exposed to a set of possibilities of what living with place can look like. It brings me to where what we want people to leave here with, which is this energy and this sense of possibility, like that's core value so that they can go apply that to the context that they call home. And a part of that, I think, is just curiosity too. curiosity about being able to look at a place and wonder, why does this look like it does? What is happening here? What are the forces at play? And of course, that applies socially too. Like, why does the center of Farmington, our town, look the way it does? What are the cultural forces that shape these stores that are here? So it's not just, it doesn't just apply to this ecological space that we inhabit. And I guess maybe if I'm speaking about it, wanting people to leave here with something, another thing that is feels important is just feeling at home, an embodied sense that earth is home. It really feels like if that experience happens, then in all these other scenarios later down the way, like behind the store where you happen to be working, where there's the stream and stinging nettle is growing and you go back there and you suddenly feel welcome and you feel at home, that's human intelligence taking over. The part of us that knows that we are people of earth and recognizes the gifts, recognizes that we are a part of a place and belong, and that being able to apply that to all different spaces and contexts is such a gift as we walk our lives, walk through this journey, which is never as straight or easy as we would envision it to be. And you remind me that with your mention of liberal arts education and what you shared earlier about like a semesterized education, that something that I've been speaking to some when it comes to permaculture is that a permaculture design course is 72 hours. It's about the equivalent of six college credits at someone's freshman year. It's like a 101 and a 102 course as an introductory to someone's discipline, but there's so much more that you can build on top of it. And it sounds like with where the understory is now as a nine-week program, that's the equivalent of four classes at the college level to get you introduced to a broad set of these skills. And when you move to 12 weeks, that would be like a full first semester for someone. But that there's so much more that students can do after they take any one of these courses that they find value in to really find their niche and develop and grow based on who they are as a person, where they find themselves in their lives, where they find themselves in the world physically, the community that they're a part of. And with all of that, it sounds like you're really giving your students a base to grow from. With that thought of taking the understory and making it a bit longer, what do you see for the future of the understory as a program and the way that will impact your students' and participants' lives as it continues to grow and change in the future? We see it inhabiting both shoulder seasons because 
that's really when so much transition happens and when so much of the living happens. So winter and summer in some ways are the quiet seasons, but spring and fall are where so much of the work gets done and the livelihood gets made. And so we see the program inhabiting both those seasons, which means in the spring, eventually here, we'd like to see the understory beginning in perhaps even February. So lengthening could be beyond three months, but lengthening in to include the start of sugaring, maple sugaring season, and then transferring through that spring mud period into the wild plant and the gathering and planting season. So that's one place that I feel like we'll just expanding in time, we'll hold more parts of those seasonal rhythms. Another space that I feel the program, I would love to see it grow is because expeditionary learning has been so powerful in my work and life. And pretty much every time I cross the Sandy River, which is our watershed that flows down to the Kennebec and into the Gulf of Maine, almost every time I cross that river and definitely every time I cross farther down towards the Kennebec, I envision paddling that route with people. And I envision what it would be to look at Maine from the backside, meaning the rivers are no longer the highways, but they were the highways once. And so both to connect with those indigenous rhythms and utilize some of the guides who work in Maine now in the Penobscot community, but also just to travel through an industrial landscape while utilizing skills that your gathering skills, your camp setting skills, your and starting with making a paddle here at Maine Local Living. That's a place that I see this program inhabiting and is actually very congruent with what the work that I've done as a semester teacher. And it's a compromise between the homestead and the expedition. And I, having worked for an expeditionary organization, CROCA Expeditions, was always drawn towards the power of staying put and what you can do when you're not having to move every day, all of the time and energy that can, gets consumed and the discussions you can have and the ways in which you can really deeply connect with place and the trees that are growing there and the craft work that can be done. But coming full circle around and really building a program that is that, I still see the power in moving. And so that's a, a direction that I could see one of these, maybe the spring program growing in as it takes root and I guess the last thought as far as change and how this program is going to grow and shift is I know that, that really is so dependent upon those who facilitate. And we work with some really special and talented people who are teaching right now. And I know that more are going to come along and they're going to inspire change and shift that I can't yet envision. And so just staying open to that, I think, is an important part of my work as the director. And though you just shared some last thoughts on the understory, do you have any final thoughts for the listeners from this conversation or anything we touched on today or from our previous conversation? One thought that kind of rings true as we think about all the diverse ways that we have right now of living in a place and 
the shoulders upon which we stand and the knowledge that we honor and utilize or choose not to, if that doesn't feel right, is this thought that comes to me from my mentor, Ray Wrightsey. And it's been really just a useful metric. And so I thought I would share it, which is to do whatever feels like the more loving thing. And it's that simple. So sometimes if I'm having a question, like, is this right? Should I be doing this work? And it can apply even to just a land-based decision, or it can apply to this question of cultural appropriation or cultural shift or whatever it is that the question is presenting. Our times are unprecedentedly complicated and the forces that ring in upon us from all of these intelligent and creative voices that are being shared and voiced and shared, it can be overwhelming. And so I just like the simplicity of that metric to just sit calmly for a moment, quietly take some breaths and say, what is the more loving thing in this moment? And when it feels clear, okay, that will be that. You go with that action. And that was Chris Knapp of Maine Local Living School. Find out more about Chris, the school, and the understory at mainlocalliving.org. As a teacher always seeking new pedagogical approaches for my own work, and to learn more about what others are doing, let me know if you have an instructor who inspired you. Or, if you are an instructor pushing the edges of permaculture education, I'd like to know more about you and your programs. Visit thepermaculturepodcast.com and click on Contact to send me a message. I'd love to hear from you. Until the next time, spend each day expanding your story while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other. The Permaculture Podcast is a production of Permaneo Group. Find out more about the Permaculture Podcast, including the extensive archives, by visiting our website, thepermaculturepodcast.com. Learn more about Permaneo Group and other projects at permaneogroup.com.